You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Hi everybody and welcome to another Podzine, dated Monday the 7th of April 2008. and welcome once again to The Podzine, the audio outdoor magazine show for outdoors lovers listening everywhere in the world. And we do mean everywhere. Um, I've recently received an email from a, a listener um, out in the deep blue sea, or on the deep blue sea rather, uh, and I thought I'd read it to you and share and give you an idea of some of the diversity of listeners that we get to The Podzine. Hello Podcast Bob, I thought I'd drop you a line to let you know just how much I've been enjoying your podcasts. I work as a captain on a very large oil tanker for three to six months of the year, so I have a long time away from the hills and usually bury myself in my spare time in books and magazines, both of a fiction and non-fiction variety hill and non-hill related. I had heard and read about your podcasts in the TGO magazine, but hadn't paid much attention to them until I was introduced to them with a free CD which came with my Golite Pinnacle rucksack. I thought I'd give them a listen and when I was away on the next trip and I found that I thoroughly enjoyed them. The next leave I downloaded all the previous three months worth as well as those issued when I was at home and have just finished listening to, the, to your exploits as well as some others on the TGO Challenge and the weekly podcasts after that. Anyway, just to say thanks for the wonderful entertainment, information and envy they produce and that I have to wait until I get home before I can buy some gear, get out again and lose myself in the hills, so to speak. And if you're wondering what the Yonora Glory looks like, Google it and you'll see a picture of a super on the super tanker site run by some Dutch bloke. Best regards, Chaz Foxcroft. Well, thanks very much indeed, Chaz, for that. Uh, and when you do Google the Yonora Glory, my word, it's a big one. Um, so uh, safe travels and um, let's get, get out in the hills. I hope these uh, podcasts keep you entertained while you're away. Um, of course, if you've got a and drum, want to drop us a note, whenever you are in the in the world, love to hear from you. Uh, love to uh, find out how these podcasts reach you and, and what effect, if any, they they make to your outdoors life. Uh, and of course, you can write to us at info at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. That's info at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Uh, and while you're on the website, um, you, there's a, obviously the listener page where we've got a frapper map, so you can stick a pin in the uh, in the world wherever you might be. I suppose in Chaz's case, it's going to be a dotted a dotted uh, note because he's always moving. Uh, there's a uh, blogger roundup. The outdoors bloggers uh, put a, a weekly section up on the website just to let you know what other people are blogging about in the outdoors world. There's also a podcast roundup as well and um, contacts galore, which will keep you entertained for hours on end. Now, the week has been pretty busy for me because I've been compiling the podcast which has just been released uh, from my last weekend with Nomad uh, Bushcraft, which was a great weekend, and I really would um, suggest people uh, consider doing something like that to brush up on their skills if they've got a few basic skills or to actually learn a little bit more about their environment because it really does enhance your outdoors activity. And I'm looking forward to using the skills um, I learned there uh, on my next trip uh, up in Scotland. So thanks very much to Andrew and Carrie for that, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Do have a listen to that one. Uh, now, talking of Bushcraft, Bushcraft magazine 
Um, obviously, there they are. There's a prize um, which I'll be announcing at the end of the show uh, of the winner of uh, a year's subscription to Bushcraft and Survival magazine, plus the Bushcraft goodie bag, which is fantastic. It's over a hundred pounds worth of gear, uh, such as flint steels, sporks, uh, meal kits, jerkies, Swedish cooking utensils, utensils, a shiwi, and uh, a buff, to name but a few items. So, um, fantastic for them. Thank you very much for supporting us on that score. Uh, and the winner will be announced later. Uh, but they've also got something going on they wanted to, to announce uh, on the 8th to the 18th of June and on the 3rd to the 14th of August of this year um, how about spending 10 days over in Sweden with Lars Ananda who is uh, the godfather I think of a lot of the bushcrafting uh, skills and so on um, uh, just a brief note here whilst in the world you'll practice your bushcraft skills with a firm emphasis being placed on using the axe and the resources around you um, open canoes await you and you'll have the chance to spend some time on the water with Lars and Bo an expert instructor making your replacement paddle with your axe and try your hand at fishing before embarking on a journey south in your open canoe heading back towards Grands Falls where you'll spend your final night relaxing and telling stories. Uh, not cheap but if you're a, a bushcraft enthusiast uh, that must be uh, fantastic to go out with uh, somebody with that much knowledge, knowledge and if anything like my weekend learn heaps uh, right, well, let's get on with the show notes. He says, looking around for his bits of papers here. Um, we've got three pieces for you, and obviously an exciting new competition as well. Um, we're talking access uh, with the director of access from the British Horse Society, uh, who obviously is looking at the Public Rights Away Network, which affects us all. Uh, we're also uh, Gary Middleholtz from Doing Stuff Outdoors has sent us a clip uh, of a British couple who've moved to British Columbia and opened a bed and breakfast out there, and you can hear about their lifestyle. Uh, but first, let's kick off with uh, Mark Thackerer, who is the general manager, marketing manager for Olympus UK. Now, I met him at the recent Focus show, where Olympus were presenting their new product range which is designed to meet the needs of the active outdoors user who wants a way of capturing their chosen activity without worrying about their camera. Squarely aimed at people like us, ramblers, backpackers, travellers, kayakers, climbers, you name it, it would appear that the tough new range is just what we've all been waiting for since, since digital photography began. I think most people would be aware digital really took off about 10 years ago and consumer cameras in those days were about a thousand pounds and they came down gradually but even two or three years ago there was still several hundred pounds for a good one and a lot of people at that time were nervous about taking them outdoors or to the beach or the pool any kind of activity because they were very expensive to get fixed if you if you damaged them and uh, underwater is obviously an area that's been very popular snorkeling's on the increase scuba diving's always been popular but underwater housings for cameras are quite expensive. So Olympus were looking at the various different things people wanted from a product and came up with a solution which not only makes it under usable underwater, but is uh, makes the camera shockproof as well. And the whole concept behind the Tough Range, which started about three years ago, was to put uh, the circuit board and the lens internally suspended. It's a unique thing to us at the moment, at least. Uh, within the body shell so that it's rugged but not rugged as in the sense of being like a brick and rubberized which has been tried in the past but a nice sleek camera you can still put in your pocket so the whole purpose is slim easy enough to carry around but you can use it anywhere so this latest one uh, has that plus a lot more 
Okay, well, certainly the, the, the marketplace I can see this is fairly and squarely aimed at is uh, people that like to take their camera equipment outdoors with them and capture the moment. And as, as you were saying earlier on, uh, if they're by the pool with the kids or if they're sort of on the rock pool or on the beach and so yeah. on, that's really where most people start to get very, very nervous about their their uh, their investment, which, you know, no matter how much it is, it's always something you're always very caref yep. careful to, to consider. So uh, presumably it's also, as well as being shockproof and, uh, and water-resistant or water-resistant to a certain depth, it's also got the ability not to absorb any grit and so on in its, in its uh, expanding parts, as it were. Yeah, that's that's the general idea. It's uh, the theory behind this one, because this is the new top of the range, the 1030, is this is the ultimate one. You can sit on it, stand on it, even it'll take 100 kilos, which is quite a weight. Uh, you can drop it now from two meters, which is six foot six in old people's money, which is quite a long way. Uh, Ten meter depth. Uh, water resistant, which basically means it's great for snorkeling, and if your children play by the pool and drop it in the deep end, it's not going to come to any harm. It's not aimed at scuba divers. You can get an underwater housing to go down to 30 or 40 meters, and for those kind of things, you need extra lights anyway. Uh, but it's also freeze proof, so if you're out minus 10 up mountains, out in the cold, uh, it'll still operate. So it, it's it's aimed to cover everything basically. It sounds like a good good all round uh, camera from that point of view. Now it's it's powered from uh, the lithium batteries. Yes. Uh, and what sort of uh, number of shots do you think you can get from a, from full load, full charge? Well, as usual, it all depends on how many times you review it, how much flash you use. But you should get 250, 300 without a problem. And they're not very heavy, so it's easy to take a couple of spare ones with you. The charge is separate. Charge them all up. They don't take long to charge. Stick a couple of spare batteries in your bag, and you'll get thousand shots which is more than enough for most people, yeah, I guess. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking that really most people that probably be listening would be doing, the type of people would be doing sort of weekend trips or perhaps week trips. Mm. Uh, and uh, if they're out in the Pyrenees or, or in the Alps or whatever, they would be looking to want to capture, capture that. And obviously they might be susceptible to some of those weather conditions, some of the, especially below freezing, slightly up in the mountains there, yeah, uh, and certainly it getting wet, because it's bound to be in a pocket somewhere that, that yeah, it yeah. gets wet. Um, what, uh, can you just talk me through sort of the main features of the camera itself, the megap megapixels and so on? Sure. I mean, this, this is new generation, so 10 million pixels, which frankly is more than enough. Oh, plenty, isn't uh, it? I mean, the pixel race goes on and on. You don't really need as many as people think, but 10 million means it's got plenty. You can blow it up to poster size if you want to. It's an almost four times zoom, I think it's 3.6, so you get a relatively wide angle end, which is good for outdoors, obviously landscapes, uh, but a reasonable telephoto as well, which is good for portraits. So it's not aimed for wildlife, it's a general purpose camera, but you can do anything from a good landscape shot to a portrait. Plenty of scene modes, that basically means that whatever the conditions are, you can set the camera up. So if you are underwater, it'll counteract the fact that things look a bit blue underwater. Um, if you're trying to shoot through glass, you can do that by turning the focus off. And it's got a myriad of other settings in between. Sunsets, it adjusts the colour balance. So despite it being a very much an automatic camera, you can set it up to give you the sort of effect you're after. Has it got full manual override as well? No, it doesn't. I think that this sort of uh, product is quite difficult to put all the buttons on it that you need for full manual override. But you can influence the camera quite a bit. It's also got a movie mode, which, uh, whilst limited on digital cameras, is enough to capture uh, short bursts of activity and reasonable quality. What, what do you think about the, the movie modes on the still cameras? It seems to be a bit of a... Um 
sort of a nod in the direction of that movies are, need to be taken, yeah. but their quality is never quite well. Obviously, it's not the same as a, as a full PAL resolution no. uh, DV camera, but and still, most cameras will 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 have that technology. Where do you think it's going from that point of view? Uh, the jury's out on that a little bit. You, there are two or three issues. One is duty. There's eight percent duty on video cameras that isn't on still cameras and that may not sound a lot but if everybody's in a competitive marketplace and you put a full function movie mode on a camera it becomes a lot more expensive by the time it gets in the shop so that's one issue technologically wise it's quite difficult to make a very compact camera that functions well as a video camera at the moment but I don't think there's any doubt that people there's a demand for things which are basically like this that will do better quality video and I think with HD coming along you may well see video cameras specializing in high definition and still cameras possibly doing enough resolution for a computer screen or a normal TV but uh, it, there's, there's a few issues to address yet. Mm, I suppose it, one of the key things being the actual price of, of memory and flash memory, so that if you want a full, full quality, full resolution imagery, it's going to take an awful lot of memory, and that needs to be cheap and fast as well. It does. The cheap is here already. I mean, that, that the last 18 months, memory's come down dramatically, even again. So I don't think memory capacity is an issue, but speed, you're right. Uh, but that's also changing. So I think we will see more and more what you might call hybrid cameras and I, I, mean, I use this a lot with the children I'll probably regret it in a few years time when I've got grainy little pictures but at least I'll have something when I wouldn't have had a, a movie camera with me so yeah indeed okay so just coming back to this camera then um, this is new for 2008 yes uh, so would you just like to talk us through um, this camera and any other ones in the range and the sort of price range for people to uh, to have a look out for well from your perspective I think uh, your listeners this is the top of the range tough so it's around 250 pounds that's different in different currencies but let's say in the UK that'll be roughly what it'll sell for when it comes out in a few weeks time it has a little brother which is slightly slimmer not quite as tough so you can't stand on it but it'll still drop proof that's around 200 that's the Mu 850 which you can also get in a rather fetching pink if it turns you on mm. um, but the other sort of end of the spectrum is the E3 which is the SLR at the show and that was launched just before Christmas. Um, and it's one of the few SLRs that's genuinely weatherproof. And there's a couple of guys on the stand now who spent all last weekend in Scotland in the pouring rain taking pictures of otters, while all the other people with their other brands were standing undercover. So it's also worth looking at. That's not cheap, but it's, it's well worth the money if, if you want high-quality photographs and you're going outdoors and if it's raining you'll miss them then it's certainly worth looking at are you aware at all of the sort of the percentage of marketplace that is interested in the outdoors as regards using your equipment it's huge more and more people are traveling more and more people are trying to get out different places to explore more so and the size very difficult to estimate but there's no doubt that demand is getting bigger and bigger the party. Well, thanks for indeed to Mark for explaining about those new products, which are now, uh, when you hear this, are obviously in the shops. And uh, Mark has very, very generously donated a couple of cameras as prizes for the Podzine. How about that? And we'll be giving the first one away at the end of the show with a competition. So make sure you stay tuned for that one and enter. Uh, so thank you very much indeed, Mark, for that. And that will be uh, one of the 850s. 
Um, now, uh, Gary Middleholtz, over on Doing Stuff Outdoors, if you're a podcast fan, you will no doubt have found Gary. If not, have a look on my links page. It'll certainly uh, uh, link you straight back there. Very enjoyable podcast, a range of podcasts he produces in North America. Uh, and he sent me a clip uh, of an interview he did uh, recently for, from a um, with a UK couple who escaped to the mountains of British Columbia for an outdoors lifestyle. And they now run a fabulous bed and breakfast called Home Lodge. Now, the lure of the outdoors has a strong pull. A few years ago, it pulled Simon and Lynn Heaton out of their home in London and sent them thousands of miles away to the small community of Golden in the mountains of British Columbia in Western Canada. There they live the outdoors lifestyle they've always wanted and cater to other outdoor enthusiasts who come to Golden for the skiing, hiking and mountain biking. And here's Gary chatting to Simon and Lynn. I'm Lynn. And I'm Simon. And this is Home Lodge in Golden, mm -hmm. British Columbia. And this is our home away from home, and it's been fabulous. But how long have you been doing this? This is our third winter. We came here in the summer of 2004. You escaped from the UK. We escaped corporate life <laughs> to have a better life. And looking back, I have no idea how we decided to end up having a bed and breakfast. Um... Because well, Simon grew up in hotels and his parents find it hilarious that this is what we're doing because he said he would never do it <laughs> growing up. <laughs> well, we were trying to find something that we could do in a place in the mountains that we fell in love with and we looked at all the options and a place like this seemed to make the most sense for what we could do and uh, we found the right place to be able to do it with and you know, it's, a, it's a nice place for being able to, to build a business. Why Golden? Why British Columbia? A friend of ours said we should go and have a look. And that was in uh, Christmas 2003. So we came out and had a look and met lots of people and fell in love with the area and bought a house, and here we are. Well, now I want to ask you about, you, you do run the B&B, &B and you cater to a lot of people who like outdoor activities, like skiing, like what we're here doing. What, what about the outdoors for you, the, you know, the appeal of this part of Canada for you, especially coming from, from Britain? The, there's two things for me. I think, without even realising it, this reminds me a lot of Scotland, on wh where I grew up, on a much bigger scale, though. So everything's bigger here. But the, the, it's the same trees, it's the same greenery, it's the same everything. So that's one thing. The other thing is, this area in particular, for me, I just love the fact that it feels quite real and rugged and authentic. I mean, golden if I'm completely honest, is not the most beautiful-looking town in the world. <laughs> but it's a real industrial town. This is where a lot of the... This is where the railway came through the pass when the CP Rail was being developed. It's where a lot of the Swiss guides came and on their adventures. And, um, and another reason for us for choosing to live here was because it was a real town with a real community. It wasn't a resort, so it doesn't have a transient population. It's got sort of a, a heart and soul and real lovely, real nice mix of really welcoming people who've been great to people like us who are new to the area. And it doesn't, it's not a resort town, but it does have a pretty good resort. Oh, absolutely. You've got skiing in the winter with downhill skiing and cross-country skiing and then lots of people who go into the backcountry. And uh, I think we've definitely got North America's biggest uh, helicopter access backcountry terrain. There's, uh, I think, 15 different backcountry lodges that you can take a helicopter into and ski tour from. And then in the summertime, there's mountain biking, which is cross-country, downhill, road biking. People do something called the Golden Triangle, which is bike ride from here to Lake Louise and then down to Radium and back, which is crazy if you ask Insane, me. Insane, yeah. <laughs> 
And then there's all the lakes for hiking and fishing and rivers. And Lynn's got horses here, which is one of her childhood uh, dreams was to have horses. So there's, there's so many different things to do. And it's funny, when we were talking on the ski lift today, I was looking at the hills thinking, oh, it's probably getting time to uh, dust out down my bike and, uh, and get that ready for the downhill biking season. So, yeah, like skiing without skis. <laughs> yeah, it's just the same. You, so the same gondola that we rode up today, you put your bike in it, and you go up to the top, and just like you put your skis on, you get on your bike, and you, you ride down. And, uh, and there's a blue run or a black run. It's scary going down on skis. I can't imagine it. Did you do it too? I did it once last year, and it was the scariest thing I've ever done. <laughs> but I, I think I did laugh the whole way from top to bottom. It was very good fun. So you guys are live. I mean, you're here. You're catering to people who come here to do outdoor stuff, but you also live the lifestyle. Absolutely. I think I've got 25 days on my ski pass for here, just at kicking off this season, and I'll probably do 20 days on my bike in the summertime and. The hiking, probably September, October time, we'll, we'll do lots of that and camping out. And it's just, we do what we do and we work to be able to go and play. When you look back on the decision you made, kind of just out of the blue to, to come to, to Western Canada like that, um, from, from the UK, how do you feel about that decision now? I've never once thought it was the wrong one to have made, not once. I never once have thought about what I would be doing if I was back in London. <laughs> I am... Um... It just seems so much easier to do stuff. It always seemed a bit of an effort to do outdoor things where we lived in London. You know, much as we had all these great ambitions to, right, we'll go out on our bikes and we'll go for a nice walk. And it was just too far to drive. And the, the week of work meant weekends were about recovering from that. And here it's just everything else fits around being outdoors rather than the opposite way around. So that just makes it just everything positive about it. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it wasn't really a big decision. The, the biggest decision was deciding to act, because we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. But the, the act of actually physically printing off the forms to apply to immigrate was, was the biggest and lengthiest part of the process for us. We sat and looked at those forms for three months. But once it was done, I've never looked back. The only thing I miss is family. And uh, we probably spend more time with them now when they come and visit here because they come and stay for two weeks rather than you see them for lunch on a Sunday every third mm -hmm. month or something. So it's, it's great and uh, a very welcoming place. The only thing I wish I'd done is got rid of the house in England. Now house prices are dropping. <laughs> <laughs> well, here you are. Listen, I, and, and you're great hosts. Thank you for your hospitality. It's been wonderful. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks. And a fabulous cook, I might add. <laughs> you're more than welcome. Thank you. So what's happening soon in the great outdoors? The Podzine Diary. Gary, obviously enjoying some uh, good old-fashioned British hospitality in British Columbia there. So uh, yeah, the, it was the cooking comment that got me. Obviously, a man who likes his food, which is perfectly fair. And uh, interestingly, uh, looking at the diary section now, we're going to have a look at the diary page over on the outdoor station. Um, food does seem to be forming a major part of um, activities going on around around the counties, around the country. Um, I haven't put it on the diary here, but I've got a, a wild food uh, chat coming up with uh, Diana, the lady I went um, and did the fungus walk with. 
uh, just before Christmas. Uh, and so I hope to be recording that and uh, passing that on to people for what foods are available in the hedgerow. And following on with uh, the food theme, um, apart from the obviously, uh, we've mentioned the various uh, outdoor activities in, in April. Um, just to remind you, there is um, Damson Day in Cumbria uh, on the 19th of April up in, uh, near Kendall. Uh, which is a sort of a country craft demonstrations. Uh, all the various things you can do with damsons, drink it, eat it, put it with uh, syrups and whatever else. So that'll be good fun. I'm sure there'll be plenty there for the children. Uh, near Kiddyminster, the Worcestershire County Museum are doing a celebration of farming from uh, plough to plate. And anything else on the food front? Uh, there's the eco-friendly organisation Earth Day uh, in Norfolk, Deepdale Farm, on the 22nd of April. Um, again, all the links to these things are, can be found on the diary page um, over on the outdoor station. Uh, one in particular I will be hoping to go to myself is the British Asparagus Festival uh, over at the Fleece at Bretforton in uh, just outside of Evesham. Um, Evesham area is very, very well known for its asparagus and uh, we're great asparagus fa fans in this family, so we will certainly be travelling on our stomach, as it were. Um, and the rest of the activities uh, mentioned in April are social gatherings and so on. I uh, certainly want to mention the Outdoors Magic Social at Bedgellet as the weather starts to improve. I should imagine that'll be fantastic. Uh, that's the 25th, 27th of April. Uh, and the various walking festivals are all starting as well. So let's just quickly wind back again. We've got... Um he says, we've got the Peak District Walking Festival starting on the 19th for a week. Um, uh, again, uh, we're on the website, Peak District website. We have the Holt Whistle Walking Festival starting on the 26th of April for a week. Uh, we have the, um, obviously the National Bike Show as well at the NEC. And of course, I must give a plug to um, the Backpackers Club up in Derbyshire on the 26th, 27th of April. Uh, but it's predominantly the Saturday, the 26th at Ashford in the Water. Um, the Backpackers Club are having their AGM and there'll be a small uh, trade section there, uh, trade stands and exhibitions and so on. We'll be there uh, with uh, a whole pile of equipment and hopefully catching some interviews with people. Uh, moving on into May, again, more walking festivals. North Devon and Exmoor Walking Festival on the 1st to the 9th and Caithness and Sutherland Walking Festival uh, 1st to the 6th. Uh, and then the Open Canoe Association have got their annual rally up in Lake Windermere, uh, 2nd to the 5th of May. Now, that isn't a free. You have to pay for that one. Um, and it isn't it isn't cheap, but from what I've read about it, it's fantastic. And if you're into uh, the possibilities of uh, uh, getting involved with open canoeing activity, that's the place to go and really pick some people's brains. But again, all the details are on the website, so please have a look there and um, choose your springtime activity. Um, well, all our activities obviously are hinged around access and uh, the government have recently announced um, from September, obviously, that it plans to uh, legislate to give Natural England new powers to improve access around the whole English coastline, uh, which is it's about flipping time, really. Why can't we? We live on an island. Why can't we walk around the perimeter of the island? It's ridiculous. So these powers are included in the draft Marine Bill, uh, which was published on the 3rd of April uh, 2008. Obviously, it's just been published to allow scrutiny by MPs and peers before it is put before Parliament and uh, that will be interesting to see how that progresses but uh, I think there can't be a single listener uh, to this uh, this programme that doesn't want freedom to access all around our coastline uh, so uh, let's keep a close eye on that and if there's any forums or if there is any petitions that uh, you need to sign I'll try and bring that information to you Anyway, as part and parcel of this, at the Outdoors show, I spoke to 
uh, Mark Weston, who's the Director of Access, uh, Safety and Welfare, Welfare at the British Horse Society regarding the public rights-of-way network, uh, which affect them, and, of course, other bridleway users, such as hikers and cyclists and so on. And this is what Mark had to say. Basically, in, in respect to the public rights-of-way network, which lots of horse riders like to ride on, um, equestrians only have access to 22% of the actual network, and carriage drivers are even worse off, and they've only got access to 5%. So we're working the whole time to try and increase that percentage. We're lobbying government in respect to certain issues at the moment. You'll no doubt be aware of the coastal access um, issue that's, that the government are promoting at the moment and that, that they are once again promoting that just, just for access for walkers but we've been working with the ramblers, the mountaineers, the cavers, the mountain bikers, the cyclists to suggest that that ought to be an access corridor for all non-motorised users which would make, uh, make it much, much better value to everyone and also provide best, best value for the taxpayer. And as well as obviously bring a lot of money into the local economy as well because you know hikers or, or, or you know, people travelling by self-powered travel do bring a lot of money into the locality, don't they? Indeed, and of course the, the advantage of equestrian tourism is, is that you are uh, paying not just for yourself but you're also paying for accommodation for your horse as well. Yeah, yeah. So where did it all go wrong? When, when did it suddenly affect us this way? I, I, did, was there a definitive time or a period of time where, where bridleways suddenly got short, cut short? No, I think, think probably where the problem arose was when the uh, definitive map first came into being in the 1950s and uh, a lot of bridleways then were actually recorded on the definitive map as footpaths. And uh, horse riders always, all, had always ridden the routes and they didn't, uh, I think at that stage, they, were, they, they probably didn't think there was a lot of need to record them as they customarily rode them and continued to ride them. So a lot of our routes were actually put on the definitive map as, as footpaths. Uh, and of course, since then, we've had fences and uh, everybody's been very protective of their territory, so they tend to keep um, certainly equestrian riders out, don't they? Indeed, that, that, that is a perennial problem, especially as land uh, nowadays changes hand, hands more frequently. Uh, new uh, landowners come in, and if people have habitually ridden a route which isn't on the definitive map, then uh, those new landowners are all too prone to, uh, to stop, stop that access, which then means that we have to then claim those, those routes and try and get them on the definitive map. So what, what work have you been doing over the last few years then? How, how successful has it been, this, this approach to, to open some of these routes up? Uh, well, the British Horse Society has over 200 access volunteers around the countryside, and all those volunteers are basically surveying their, 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 their localities and their areas and uh, applying to get new routes on the definitive map. Those are routes which riders in their locality have ridden since time immemorial, but they, don't, they just happen not to be on the definitive map or are recorded on the definitive map as a, at a different status. And uh, the, the coastal access um, situation at the moment, are you finding, does it look very positive for you? Well, I mean, it, it, it's not looking positive from the point of view that DEFRA have uh, come out recommending that access ought to be for um, only, only for walkers. But what, what is positive is the fact that all the user groups are working to say, no, that shouldn't be the case, and uh, it ought to be um, access for all non-motorised users. That's, that's very positive, and we've been lobbying the minister in respect of that as well. Do you visualise that there'll be something in the near future that, would, that might change, that will help you go forward in leaps and bounds, as opposed to, obviously, you're having a bit of a battle at the moment? Um, all, all we can do is, is to just, just press the point that uh, 
local local government and national government decision makers, when they are um, thinking about access, they, they, they don't forget the, the equestrian world and the horse riders. It's particularly important in respect to the equestrian world because, of course, as our roads get busier and busier and the more traffic gets on them and they get faster and faster, horse riders are being pushed off those. So we do need the off-road off riding routes and preferably what we're, what we're aiming for is that we would like every horse rider to uh, be able to access an off-road community circuit within their locality. And, of course, the, 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 the benefit and the joy of that is that, that those would be circuits that are not only available to horse riders, but they would be available to cyclists and walkers as well. For, um, for any equestrian riders or cyclists, obviously, listening to this that uh, might be interested in, in your work and, and where they can actually uh, go legally and, and ride and so on, is there any way of them finding out? Uh, indeed, they can, they can phone us on 01926 707812 or they can look on the British Horse Society website and, and indeed if people are wanting to find out where to ride in their um, area we now have a digital mapping system and if they phone us on that number we can give them details of where to ride in their area um, in respect of our, our imagined ge geographical information system. Well, my thanks to everyone who's taken part in the show. And, of course, there'll be links uh, in the show notes to the British Horse Society. Uh, certainly uh, get involved there if you want to and, obviously, uh, put some pressure where we can uh, to make sure we have access. Um, there'll be a link to Home Lodge, the bed and breakfast over in British Columbia, if you ever fancy a quiet weekend away. And, of course, to Olympus Cameras. Now, last week we had the competition section, and the competition was donated by Simon at uh, Bushcraft and Survival Skills magazine, which was a year's subscription to the magazine and a goodie bag. And in that goodie bag, he's very generously placed a Bushcraft Survival Skills magazine binder, a Light My Fire Flint and Steel, a Light My Fire Spork, a Light My Fire Meal Kit, a set of lightweight Swedish cooking utensils, a pack of Scottish beef jerky, a pack of Scottish venison jerky, a shiwi and a National Geographic buff with some other bits and bobs there. So thank you very much indeed to Simon. That'll certainly set you off uh, bushcrafting if nothing does. And and that comes to just over £100. So that's great. Now the question was for last week's competition, who um, writes their wildlife section in the magazine? Who writes their wildlife section in the magazine? And I directed you to the website uh, where if you had a little bit of a hunt around you could find the answer. And the answer is of course Chris Salisbury. Um, now, we had a whole pile of entries, as you would expect, and I've set them all into the machine, so I'm just waiting for the machine now to randomly pull out a name. And we're just waiting, and... Yep, yep, here we go. Right, and the winner is... Uh, the winner is Andrew Howard. Congratulations, Andrew. Andrew Howard from Blackpool in Lancashire. Uh, congratulations, and I'll pass your details over to Bushcraft Magazine, and I'm sure you'll get your goodie bag uh, very, very soon. Right, on to this week's competition. Um, he said, hunting around. Here we go, yeah. This week's competition is uh, to win a Olympus 850SW camera, courtesy of Olympus. They've given us a couple of cameras, and this is the first competition to win the first of those cameras. Um, now, it may sound technical, but the answer can be found on the Olympus website, uh, particularly if you look at the 850SW details. Again, there'll be links in the show notes to find that. 
Uh, the question is this. What are the pixel dimensions of an 8-megapixel camera? What are the pixel dimensions of this 8-megapixel camera? Okay. If a 1-megapixel dimension is 1,280 pixels by 960, what are the dimensions of an 8-megapixel? Uh, you don't have to do the maths. The answer is on the website. So have a look around there, see if you can find that, and drop me a line. Now, the address to drop uh, your... Um, uh, competition entry two. Um, now make sure you give me the answer. You give me your name, obviously your dress details, because I've got the camera sitting in front of me, and I'm tempted to keep it. Uh, to uh, Olympus hyphen competition at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. That's Olympus hyphen competition at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk with the answer to the question: What are the pixel pixel dimensions of this eight megapixel camera? The maximum dimensions. And as I say, the answer can be found on the Olympus website. So thanks to everybody once again for taking part in the show. Thanks very much indeed to uh, Bushcraft Magazine for last week's prize. Thanks to Olympus for this week's prize. I hope you have a fabulous week and the weather cheers up. I'm staring out at the sunshine at the moment, so I'm looking forward to getting out on the hills. So until next time, folks, uh, enjoy the podcast that we're releasing. Uh, do drop me a line at some stage uh, with any feedback, any notes, any listener comments. Love to hear from you. And obviously, if you enter any of the competitions, do uh, do give me some, uh, some comments there if you can... Uh, spare the time. Very interesting to hear how people are enjoying the podcasts. So, until next time, have a good week, everyone, and take care. Bye for now. This independent programme has been brought to you by The Outdoor Station, the exciting new way to see and hear free information about the outdoors world. If you're a blogger, or if you have a website, you can now incorporate any of these podcasts directly to your site, completely free. Visit our website, theoutdoorstation.co.uk, for more information.